randoms. What the hell am I doing here? I asked myself. I've been a beat cop two weeks ago, handling domestic violence complaints and investigating property damage. But now, now it's 2.30 in the morning and I'm playing a critical part in the most important war in human history. Absently, I reach around to a part of my neck that's been sore for a few weeks. I give it a rub, trying to stretch it out. As I do, I look up at the night sky. It is shockingly beautiful. There is no moon, but the lights of the stars are amazingly bright. And, of course, there are no street lights. The stars themselves give light, though. Because of them, I can make out the dim shapes of warehouses, security fences, and even the narrow street that runs between them. Nearby, I know there are monitoring stations and cameras on poles. But, of course, all of them have been disabled. No drone circle nearby, no cameras are trained on this location. I am standing in a part of the world that has essentially ceased to exist. I am standing in a place that will never be remembered. And I have no idea how the randoms have pulled it off. Of course, I don't need to know to do what I've come for. As I watch, the others emerge from the shadows. They are dressed in dark clothes and they come from all directions. They are misshapen, almost soft. They walk with odd gaits, like zombies shuffling through the night. They seem so harmless, so weak, but I know otherwise. I know they are the most dangerous people in the world. They are irresponsible killers, risking humankind's very survival, and they are doing it all in order to serve the most minor of selfish pleasures. They call themselves randoms but I consider them traitors to humankind. I recognize them, even from a distance. I recognize each of them by how they move, but I know them only by pseudonyms, borrowed from fantasy literature. As they draw close, I am struck once again by how young so many of them are. Most are teenagers, some are even younger. Children escaped from their homes, children with such terrible power and yet no sense of responsibility. I have nothing in common with any of them. And yes, I am here as an invited guest. I am here because I have something they need. I lift my large black duffel bag. I feel the contents shift inside of it. It is filled with bottles of pills, vials filled with clear liquids, syringes and patches, antibiotics, antivirals and painkillers anti-inflammatories, and even antihistamines. And every one of them is off-book. Every dose is untraceable. Inside are the tools that enable these reckless terrorists to continue doing what they always do. Inside are the tools that enable them to be outside, violating the isolation so critical to world health. I can barely stomach giving these people these things, these cures, when the truly deserving need them. But I know this is what I must do, and I know why I must do it. I have to serve the greater good. Is he coming? I ask one of the kids. He goes by the name Ender. He's a leader of sorts. If I had a facial recognition system, I'd know who he was. But these kids would know if I had that sort of equipment on me. I'd be dead before I'd be able to report anything to anybody. Ender will have to do for now. The kid just nods. He looks no older than my daughter, but the very comparison sickens me. They are nothing alike. Emma is honest, full of life, and brilliant. She doesn't slink around in the darkness of night telling herself stories about some romantic bullshit just to justify murderous behavior. She is the one they put at risk. Thankfully, she's at home. Her condition is not good, though. She's isolated in her room. She's come down with another illness. I don't know what it is, but I know it is serious. Over the past three months, the health authority has repeatedly sent a man-sized diagnostic robot to analyze her. Perhaps it had some powerful scanner in it. I don't know. But I know she is seriously ill and strictly confined to her room. I know she's on the razor's edge. And all because of people like these, people who've undermined our ultimate victory in the most important war of all. She is why I'm here. Ender asks, 
Are they in the bag? Yes, I say. You know we can just take them, he says. It is a lazy threat. He doesn't mean it. You could, I say, but you won't get any more if you do. Ender nods. He'd been expecting that answer. The others gather around him. So what do you want this time? He asks. I try to smile. Nothing, I say. Still nothing? Ender asks. People like you don't tend to show up with gifts like these. I know, I say, but I'm not a tend-to kind of guy. Ender nods. So how'd you get the stuff? I have an answer ready. I'm a stock clerk at the armory. I swapped out the stuff. The system isn't foolproof. The armory is what they call the Central Medical Supplies Depot. We are fighting a war. How does one just swap out the stuff? Ender asks. The RRs remember everything. You'd be caught if you tried to have yours do something it shouldn't. I'm not a stock clerk in the old-fashioned sense of the word. After the first waves of the COVID-19 infection spread globally, the death toll kept rising. Governments instituted draconian measures to keep people isolated and safe. Those measures not only saved millions of lives, they revealed another truth. Beyond corona, millions were dying each year in car accidents, from unnecessary pollution, and, yes, from other infectious agents. After seeing the effects of isolation, we realized so many of these issues could be resolved, so many lives could be saved. So society was re-engineered. Enormous amounts were spent to enable people to stay in their homes. Government-run systems supplied essential supplies, in particular food and household goods, to people's doors. Nobody would go hungry or be malnourished. There was a great coming together in defense of human life. Of course, life isn't just food and shelter. Sophisticated VR systems were developed that enabled entertainment and social interaction. 5G and 6G were harnessed to provide seamless experiences. People could immerse themselves with others anywhere they wanted, in any environment, wearing any face. The systems were given visual, audio, and even haptic feedbacks. They ensured people would never feel trapped within their homes. Instead, they'd feel empowered free. They'd be able to have experiences that never would have been possible before. With all of this, we realized another truth. We realized we'd freed humankind from limitations, biases, and discriminations of class, race, or even physical imperfection. We'd freed mankind from economic fear. We'd given humankind life. Technocratic masters had risen to the fore, delivering measurable benefits to almost immeasurable numbers of people. Almost everything was created and delivered through automated systems. GPS guided combines for farming. Robots managed warehouses and manufacturing plants. With people off the roads, self-driving vehicles became a practical reality. Before, a truck that suffered a software failure might kill people. Now it risked only property damage. Now logistics could be provided by newly designed self-driving trucks, ships, and aircraft. Of course, not everything could be run by fully automated systems. Engineers needed to design and update those systems, and sometimes technicians needed to correct for their shortcomings. The unexpected can always be expected. That's where the RRs come in. RR stands for Remote Reality. They are advanced robotic systems controlled by human operators who sit safely at home. They handle those jobs that are not yet automated, or those that suffer from failures. Every RR is different, designed from the bottom up for its specific task. The Armory has an RR system. It is a massive facility, but there is one stock technician. As far as the randoms are concerned, that technician is me. The randoms are right, though. The RRs record everything you do. They report activities that seem to violate protocol. There's no lack of overseers and auditors who ensure regulations are not violated. You can't claim somebody else was driving. There are elaborate and foolproof authentication systems that protect them from unauthorized use. Given all of that, how could I have stolen medicines? By going random, I say. With the best smile I can manage, I ordered vitamins. My daughter takes them for a condition she has. Then, again and again, I went to the armory. Physically. I know where the cameras are. I know how the doors operate. I know where everything is stored. 
From there, it was simple, although tedious. I swapped the actual medicine for the vitamins I'd ordered at home. I came with bottles of vitamins and vials of vitamins. But when I left, they had medications in them. I kept track of everything, and now I have a substantial stockpile. Ender nods, impressed. All of it is bullshit, of course. The medications were delivered to my house by a delivery bot. They were authorized by the president of the International Health Authority herself. They were given to me so that I could carry out my mission. They were given to me so that I could finally crush the randoms. We'd been making tremendous progress against them. Within our borders, they had been largely shut down. Of course, in the third world, people had lacked the resources to do what we'd done. They lacked the resources to automate their lives and free their people. They continued to be ravaged by hunger and disease. When their citizens had snuck across our borders by land and by sea, they carried their pathogens with them. In effect, they were randoms. They were threatening all of our efforts and all of our victories. We built walls, detection systems, and RRs designed to hunt and isolate these illegals. Our leadership was not simply knee-jerk in their response. They also launched massive aid programs so that those in the third world could join in our efforts to crush the terrifying pathogens that threaten humanity. Under the banner of these programs, armies of our citizens had volunteered to man our R's in the third world. They'd extended the data network coverage, built warehouses, and helped lay down roads for self-driving vehicles to navigate. For the most part, their efforts had been welcomed. Tremendous progress had been made. But just as within our borders, randoms resisted it all. Military RRs were used to bring stability and peace, although the battle was far from resolved. As their name implied, the randoms worshipped the random. Random encounters outside the controls of automated systems. Encounters that risked infection and illness. They could catch anything from a common cold to a violent flu or one of the dozens of strains of corona that were whipping through human populations. Then they could become carriers, their activities thus risking not only the lives of others, but their own lives. They got sick and they could die. That was why they needed medicine. Of course, they couldn't afford to explain their illnesses to the authorities. They couldn't explain their repeated infections. They need medication off the books. People, bottom-sucking profiteers, had long supplied them. A special force, the undercover police, had worked to track down profiteers and randoms alike. The undercovers actually go in search of randoms in person. They risk their own health and survival to find those who threaten the rest of us. As much as I honor those soldiers, I am not a part of that force. I'm just a beat cop who's always done his job through an RR. Then, two weeks ago, I got in a call in the middle of the night. As always, the video communication system authenticated who the call was coming from. I was amazed by the name on the screen. I was being called by the President of the International Health Commission. When I'd answered, I'd seen the woman as I'd never seen her before. When she held press conferences, she'd been a beautiful and well-presented woman. She'd projected confidence, strength, and determination. She'd been defiant in the face of death. It made sense. She'd been the one to spearhead everything. On this call, though, she was haggard. She had bags under her eyes, sunken skin, and unkempt hair. I'd never really considered how much the image processing systems had improved on her actual appearance. But I knew that this was the real president, a woman who had spent years working herself to the bone, fighting invisible enemies, a technocratic master who had devoted all of her substantial capabilities to defending mankind. Countless sleepless nights had taken their toll, but that determination was still there. She was still defiant. I was delighted to see her. Madame President, I said, almost snapping to attention. Officer Wilson, she'd asked. Of course, she'd have known who I was. She'd called me. Yes, Madame President. The woman on the screen took a deep breath. Officer Wilson, she said, I need your help. What followed was one of the most stunning conversations of my life. The President told me that while the randoms had been a nuisance for years, they'd changed. Very recently, they'd begun to organize. They'd acquired a commander. He was a man who called himself Nero. 
Nero was taking the randoms from a group of willful and murderous quarantine violators to an organized revolutionary force. They were trying to undermine everything, to destroy everything. And the president needed my help to stop him. Why not use the undercover police, I had asked. The answer was shocking. The president feared that Nero had bought off or otherwise corrupted senior health authority officials. She believed the undercover police themselves had been undermined by Nero's forces. She suspected that some of them may even have been working for Nero himself. Given that, I could understand why she didn't want to use the undercover police. But why would she want to use me? There were literally millions of other police officers in the world. Two reasons, she had said. First, we know that Nero lives in the D.C. metro area. Triangulation has revealed that he lives within three square miles of your location. Three square miles was a huge area, I thought. It included not only densely populated neighborhoods, but the National Mall, White House, and Capitol itself. It even included the Cylinder, the glass and steel tower built in the National Mall from which the President of the International Health Authority conducted our international efforts against death and disease. Are you at risk? I asked, suddenly worried. Everybody is at risk, she'd said gravely. It was a tone and a voice we'd grown to respect. I took a deep breath. Okay, what is the second reason? Because you have a child, she'd said, and not just any child. You know what's at stake. I thought back to Emma then, laying in the next room over, overcome by some new illness. Of course, few people have children now. They don't meet in person, and they don't need to satisfy the same limited physical desires. They've moved on and up. They interact on an intellectual level, satisfying their physical needs in other ways. Their personalities intertwine, unhindered by physical limitations and the confusion it concede. Some even find love in computers themselves, AIs interacting with them and giving them the emotional support they crave. Altogether, we live happier lives, free of the conflicts other humans can sometimes demand. Along the way, the difficult messiness of children has sort of fallen by the wayside. In a way, the randoms, teenagers, represent both the first and last of a breed. Most were born before the wave of corona infections, or just after. They were the first people to be raised in our new world. And unless we win our worn disease, theirs is probably the last great generation mankind will ever see. Of course, my daughter wasn't just one of those rare children. She suffers from Common Variable Immunodeficiency, or CVID. She has a severely weakened immune system. In her case, it was familial. Emma's mother Ruth had been five months pregnant when Corona had first appeared in China. Ruth's career was just unfolding. She'd invented the authentication system that guaranteed the source of an internet signal. It combined geographic data with various biometric authentication systems. I didn't understand the details, but I know hers was the technology that enabled the world we live in now. Unfortunately, my wife never got to see it. She had CVID just like Emma does. We'd taken little notice of the virus at first. It was a world away. Then it wasn't. Ruth survived the first wave, but not the second. Emma was born July 25, 2020, but the pregnancy had weakened her mother. Ruth was infected the 27th. She died a week and a half later. I remember talking to her via a Zoom chat, her last moments caught in a video. I couldn't even look in her eyes or hold her hand. Instead, I was holding Emma, showing her image to her mother. Ruth managed to smile. I could see that, but she was barely breathing. There weren't enough ventilators. She had CVID, and her chances of survival were low enough that she didn't merit the scarce interventions that were reserved for those who might survive. Even as I held Emma, I hated her. She was the reason my wife was dying, but Ruth loved Emma as a mother must. So I held Emma up in front of my phone's camera as Ruth whispered, Give her life. I was crying, sobbing and shaking. I will, I said through my tears. Then Ruth choked out her very last words. Remember, nothing valuable comes without a cost. That was it. She drowned on the liquid in her lungs, 
just a few minutes later. I'd been a logistics manager the day Ruth died. Two weeks later, I joined the health police on the day they were established. No matter what, I was going to protect Emma. I was going to give her life. But I'd never been asked to take a risk like this one. Madame President, I'd said on that first call, the undercover police build up their immunity over years. They're even intentionally exposed to pathogens and training. They encounter diseases one by one, not all at once. If I just go out on the street, I'll get sick, very sick. I may even die. Don't you have somebody else who can do this? It was then that the president smiled a sad smile and said, Officer Wilson, nothing valuable comes without a cost. Those were the words I needed. Men like Nero threatened my daughter's life, and Emma is worth protecting. She'd grown into an amazing child. Like her mother, she's interested in network technology. Like her mother, her interests don't stop with engineering. She cares about people as people, and she reads everything. I can't think of any kind of book she doesn't open, consume, and grow from. Yes, Emma is restricted by her CVID, locked away most of the time. But I like to think that she and other children like her have been enabled by their isolation. Sometimes I wish I had more time to be with her truly in person. But I also know that her restrictions have distilled her for me. I may not know her face to face, but I know the truth of her better than I would if I were blinded by the physical. To me, she is more than blonde curls and a spin in newly purchased shoes. I know the reality at her core. I look forward to the day she can come out, when we finally beaten back the infections, when she can emerge like a butterfly from a chrysalis. But that day is still far off. For now, her very life is threatened by the randoms, petulant teenagers who aren't satisfied despite having everything they need delivered to their doors. And now there's a Nero, a beast eager to play a violin as the world burns around him. As I spoke to the president, I knew I had to do whatever I could to stop him. And nothing valuable comes without a cost. The plan was simple. I'd show up with drugs and offer them to the randoms. I'd use my supply to climb the ranks until I could ID Nero himself. As soon as I figured out who Nero was, I'd report back to the president so she could take care of him herself. Now I'm standing in the dark with a group of bone-thin randoms, a duffel full of drugs sit next to me, bait meant to break a revolution. Now what, I ask, in the face of darkness? Ender just shrugs. We wait. One of the other kids, Lucy, asks, Why are you really here, man? She can't be older than fifteen. Most of these kids are here for the rush, but that can't be my reason. I'm over forty. I don't think like a teenager. And they know it. You ever hear of a mathematician named Alan Turing, I ask? Another of the kids nods, a girl who calls herself Hermione. He created a test, right? Right, I say. The Turing test. To conduct it, he set up three terminals. One would have a person running it. That person would ask questions to the other terminals. One of those other terminals would be run by a person, while the other was actually just a computer. Yeah, I remember now, says Hermione. If the person asking the question can't tell which of the other terminals is controlled by a computer and which is controlled by a human, then the computer has succeeded in thinking like a human. Exactly, I say. Prior to Corona, computers could only pass the test if the people questioning them asked very limited kinds of questions. But then, about five years ago, computers began to routinely pass the test. Do you know why? Smarter computers? asked Ender. The researchers said so, I say, but they were the ones trying to make smarter and smarter computers. They wanted to pat themselves on the back. The real reason is exactly the opposite of the one they gave. Computers haven't gotten that much smarter. Instead, people have gotten that much stupider. Locked in their houses, only interacting in cyberspace, they've lost the randomness that develops true human intelligence. Instead, like computers, they have programmed inputs and outputs. They've lost the randomness that makes people well, people. Is that why we're named randoms? Another kid asks. That's why I'm here, I say, trying to mask my revulsion. I'm here because you randoms are the ones preserving real humanity. Their young faces all look towards me, like I'm some sort of prophet who's given a righteous purpose to their evil. 
I look out over their wan faces. I remember Ruth's death. I remember Emma locked up in her room. And just then I promise myself that I'll see them all brought to justice. I may not have a facial recognition system, but I'll remember their faces. In time, they will all pay for the horror they bring to humanity. We're all standing there in that odd silence when a booming voice cuts through the darkness. Fellow citizens, it announces. The voice is a smooth baritone. It sounds almost like my voice, but far more confident and powerful. It is coming from everywhere. For the first time in years, I remember the citywide speaker system that had been installed in the early days of the infections in order to broadcast public messages. Have the randoms captured the system? I suppose it doesn't matter. Only randoms will hear its announcements. You are not alone in hearing my voice. Everybody is hearing my voice. On their VR systems, through their RRs, even randoms in the streets can hear what I'm saying. So much for that. The voice continues, My name is Nero. A cold chill goes through me. I'm here to rescue you from your slavery. I'm here to announce a war on the International Health Authority, a war in which the first victory has been won. The city of Des Moines has been freed. I see the randoms around me exchange high fives and fist bumps. Freed? What the hell does that mean? All data related to Des Moines has been deleted. The logistic systems no longer know who lives where, how many people there are, or even how to navigate the city's streets. To survive, the citizens of Des Moines will need to leave their homes. They will need to register in person for food. They will need to have their filters removed. In person? But people can't survive that. They don't have the immunity they'd had 14 years ago, before corona. And that one bug has mutated so many times that it is far more dangerous than anything that had existed before. I'm only getting by because I'm dipping liberally into the drugs that I've been given as part of my operation. Nero continues, My fellow citizens, this is just the start. In only three hours, the world will be reborn. I wait for more, but there is only silence. I look at the others. I can see their excitement, but all I feel is shock. Three hours, and then millions will die. They will be exposed to deadly pathogens. They will run out of food. Legs unused to exercise will give way. The elderly will starve at home. Victims of this Nero. Three hours. I have so little time. Luckily, Nero is coming to meet me now. I steel myself, trying to stay in character. Somehow, I need to stop him. What are filters, I ask, picking something random from the message. I need to hide my tension. Lucy looks incredulous. The filters, she says. HEPA filters, I ask. N95? What does he mean? No, no, the information filters. All the internet services, all the VR services have filters. They only allow information vetted by the International Health Authority. It's totalitarian, man. Nobody who disagrees can be heard. But people aren't filtered, are they, I say? Mr. Medicine Man, if you say something contrary to the directives or something that breaks up social cohesion, it can be deleted. But those are only the obvious filters. Sometimes what you say is just buried by the system that broadcasts people's feeds. Other times it is even more subtle. You'll see viewership numbers. You'll even have chat conversations with people who've seen what you broadcast. But none of it will be real. Your view counts will be fake counts and the people you'll talk to will be fake people. You'll be kept in your box and not even know it. Those are the filters. I'm about to argue, to say that they keep us safe from misinformation, dangerous speculation, and propaganda. But I check myself. I need to find Nero. I need to save Emma. She can't survive on the outside world. Wow, I say. I leave it at that. Then my mind wanders to another challenge. How has Nero pulled this off? He's just broadcast a universal alert. He hijacked a presidential system. Sure, the randoms have always been hackers, deleting data, trying to hijack surveillance systems, even bombing RR factories. The undercover police have been fighting them for years. They've even gone into the real world to tackle them directly. But this? This is another level entirely. This is an existential risk. I begin to ask other questions. Why aren't the undercover police stopping them? How can so many randoms come together like this? Are the undercover police so entirely compromised? I remember something. 
The news had said the director of the undercover police had been sick for a few weeks. They'd reported it as early-stage prostate cancer. They'd said surgical robots had dealt with it quickly. But maybe, maybe he'd been near the randoms. Maybe he'd caught something from them. Maybe he'd met Nero. In that moment, it all makes sense. Holes in policing, compromised surveillance, the rise of a prominent new random commander. It could only happen if the director of the undercover police himself has been reporting to Nero. He must be a dirty cop. I don't know why he'd do it, but he must be dirty. In a flash, I realize I need to get out of there. I need to report what I suspect. I need to call the president. But I'm surrounded by randoms. I can't run without making them suspicious. I hear the sound of tires rolling up the street. I turn and look, expecting some old, human-driven car to be crawling up towards our group. I expect to see a man in his forties, the man whose voice I just heard behind the wheel. But there is no human driver. There is no old car. Instead, the vehicle rolling towards us is a tactical police truck, a TPT. It is a hulking black beast, all odd angles resting on massive rubber wheels. But despite how heavy it looks, the TPTs are quite nimble. They have no armor, as there are no policemen inside to protect. They are large simply so they can carry a complement of armored RRs in the back. If you outrun the truck, the robots will catch you. The truck draws closer. It has no driver. Like most DBTs, this one is driving itself. I see the others getting ready to run, but I don't move. Unlike them, I want to be arrested. I want to share what I know. I also know that there's no point in trying to run. Another truck will be coming down the other end of the street, and a drone will be circling overhead. It is how we do our job. All of us are trapped. I don't even see the cavalcade of tranquilizer darks that I know was flying through the air. Instead, I fall into darkness, hoping only to report what I know to those who have arrested me. When I wake up, the world is foggy, but I feel something. A man in a black bio suit is standing beside me. I can feel somehow that I've been put into a suit of my own. My arms are wrapped in front of me, constrained, almost like a straitjacket. Now the man is standing up, pulling away. I glance over and see a needle withdrawing from some sort of port on my arm. The man has given me something to wake me up. As my vision begins to clear, he steps in front of me. I look around. I'm in an interrogation room. The walls and ceilings are a clinical white. A polished copper table with a display screen set into its middle sits between me and the man in the biosuit. Copper kills viruses. I'm sitting on a thick wooden chair that is chained to the floor. The chair is wooden because that too kills viruses. Although my legs aren't chained, I can feel that they are somehow restrained as my arms are. My suit is restraining me. The man in the other biosuit takes a seat on a chair across from me. I didn't know the police conducted face-to-face -face interrogations anymore. As I look at him, all I can smell is the material of the suit, nylon and plastic with rubber seals. I'm about to speak to thank him for picking me up when he says simply, Nero. It isn't a question. He's calling me Nero. I just stare at him, and then I recognize him. He's the chief of the International Health Police. I'd never seen him in person, of course, but I recognize him like anybody would. He's a man in his sixties, a little rounded by age. His eyes are a soft blue. He has a mustache like a bobby from mid-twentieth century England. He's considered a moderate and caring man who is ruthless in the pursuit of his mission. Seeing him now, I can appreciate all of that. He would seem like a kindly grandfather if not for the intense hatred written across his face. What, I say, shocked to hear the accusation. He must really believe I am Nero to be here questioning me in person. He presses the screen on the table. As I watch a history unfolds, it is titled Suspected Nero Locations. On the left, there's a circle about two blocks square near my apartment. On the right, there is video of me sneaking out of my apartment. As the circle moves, so does the footage of my walking through the most deeply shadowed of the streets. It follows me as I find and meet randoms. It follows me as I supply duffel bags of drugs to them. It follows my weeks of surveillance and undercover work. Everywhere I go, Nero was suspected to have been. It's not me, I insist. What about the announcement tonight? I wasn't at some broadcasting booth. You pre-recorded it, the chief says. It is your voice. We've analyzed it. 
I hear it then, playing back in my head, and I realize it is my voice, modulated, strengthened, but my voice somehow stolen from me. Somebody got a voice print, I say. And why would they bother stealing your voice? You're not that important. No, I know your type. You use your own voice because you want to be recognized. You think you'll earn some sort of magic place as a leader of humanity once you achieve your little victory. No, I insist again. I don't think any of that. I'm not Nero. What about this? The chief clicks something on the screen. It switches to a video. It's a shot of a small group of randoms. They are standing around outside a TPT parked in the street and facing the camera. Their faces are concealed by hoods. One of them climbs up into the cab of the vehicle. The others appear to be loading something into its back. The man in the cab appears to work within it for a few minutes. Then he climbs back down as the others seem to finish loading. There's something in his hand. He hits a button. Seconds later, the truck rushes forward towards the camera. It draws closer and closer, in high definition. The truck is about 50 feet away when the chief pauses the video. He zooms in on the man who loaded the truck. The man's hood has shifted just a bit. I see there in that frame a face. My face. The chief unpauses the video. A second later, the truck is right below the camera. Then everything goes to static. That was the bombing of a key RR factory. A new generation of RRs destined for counterintelligence work was being constructed there. They were all destroyed. A simultaneous hack destroyed design files in six different states, and you were there, Nero. Can't be me, I say. I wasn't there. The chief ignores my statement. Two hours, he says. What happens in two hours? It is only two hours now? I don't know, I say. It wasn't me. I was just working undercover, trying to find Nero. The man smiles through his faceplate. Really? You were trying to find yourself? I had a presidential mandate, I say. She called me a few weeks ago. She told me to go undercover. She said she wasn't sure she could trust the undercover police. The man stops smiling. I've been doing this a long time. Even so, that is one of the most creative lines of bullshit I've ever heard. It's true, I insist. What happens in two hours? I can prove it. I recorded the calls. If you're lying, I already have authorization to torture you. You understand? Lies lead to torture. I recorded them, I say again. Let me get my tablet. I can prove it. You don't need to get it, the chief says. He presses a button on the phone strapped to the back of his wrist. An instant later, the door swings open and a basic utility RR comes in carrying a tablet. I recognize it. It has the same dings and scratches and marks that mine has. It is my tablet. The RR lays it on the table. Show me, says the chief. He touches a button on his phone and my arm restraints relax. I suspect that with another button he can pull my arms right back to where they'd been. Through gloved fingers I touch the tablet and it springs to life. I swipe my pattern and it opens. I select the call logs. There aren't many of them. I haven't spent much time chatting in the past weeks. I scroll through them quickly. To my horror, the records of the presidential calls are gone. All of them are gone. They're gone. I swear I recorded them. The chief hits the button on his phone, and just as I suspected, my arms are pulled back against me. I'm completely restrained once again. No, you didn't, he says. You thought you'd buy some time, right? By having to get your tablet. But I'd already collected your tablet, and now I'm going to snuff you out like I've done to countless dangerous randoms before. You've gotten a bit further than most, but you're still nothing special. A few weeks ago, you were nobody. In another few days, you'll be nothing. Tell me what happens in two hours, and I'll let you live. I don't know, I say again. The door opens. Another basic utility RR enters. This one has a small rolled-up pouch. It lays it on the table, then it unrolls it. It is filled with hypodermic needles. As a cop, I know there's no such thing as a truth serum. These needles offer only pain. Despite my fear, I realized that he'd collected my tablet. He'd been to my house. Emma was there. They'd left her alone, of course. She wasn't important, and she had isolation markings clearly displayed on her room. But I couldn't be Nero. Not with Emma. My daughter, I say. She has CVID. She's immunocompromised. That's what killed her mother. I wouldn't risk her, and I wouldn't threaten her. Surely you can understand that. The chief looks at me, and I imagine that in that moment he can see that I'm telling the truth. Maybe that's why he's interrogating me in person. Listen, I say, I was with the randoms. I delivered the drugs. I was told I could infiltrate them and find Nero if I had something for them. But I never blew up an RR factory. I wouldn't do that. I want to protect my daughter. If you analyze the video, you'll know it's fake.
That'll take time, the chief says, and we have less than two hours. I don't have any other answers. I just know I wouldn't do it. You have to know that, too. The video has to be fake. The chief thinks for just a moment, and then he nods. The RR leaves, but the needles remain, threatening me. The two of us just sit there. The chief stares at me, and I wilt under his gaze. Fifteen minutes pass, then twenty. Then the phone on his arm dings. He presses something. His eyes open marginally wider. You sure? He asks, some voice coming through his Bluetooth. A moment later, the chief's attention turns back to me. Well, well, it is a fake. The few framed with your face were, anyway. The rest were real. All of that begs the question, why would somebody want to frame you? I don't know, I say, but the president said she suspected the undercover police. Where do you get that list of suspected Nero locations? The undercover police, the chief says slowly. What happened in Des Moines, I ask? A computer virus almost got out. The undercover police reported a hacking process. They had us shut down the whole city. We ended up blowing the Des Moines data stack in order to protect everybody else. The undercover police? Yes, he nods. Who at the undercover police? The man thoughtfully chews his lower lip. The director. He was sick a few weeks ago, right? The news claimed it was prostate cancer, but maybe it wasn't. Maybe he was working with Nero. But why, says the chief. He's a powerful man, well-rewarded, invented in every way possible. He's got the people's interests in mind, and I know him. I don't know why, but we have, what, an hour and a half? We have to stop him. The chief acts almost instantaneously. He presses something on his phone, and my arms and legs are suddenly freed. I can feel the servos release whatever shackles are built into the suit. I might need you. For some reason I can't explain, you matter. But screw with me and somebody remote will lock you down just as fast as I released you. They can even knock you out. Got it? I nod. A second later, the door swings open. With an agility beyond what I expect of a man in his sixties, the chief jumps up and races at the door. Follow me, he shouts behind him. I do. We run down a hallway towards another open door. Along the way, the chief grabs the utility belt. There's a holster on it. As we dash down the hall, he wraps it around himself. We reach the door and run through it. It leads to a little room. There's another door just beyond it. There's an airlock meant to keep out contagions. The door behind us seals. The door in front opens, and we rush outside the building. There are three TPTs parked there, in diagonal parking spots along the side of the street. Their noses are pointed out towards the street. We rush towards them. You drive, says the chief. I pull open the driver's side door. There are no locks. If somebody tries to steal them, they can be remotely piloted. I climb up onto the seat. The chief climbs up onto the passenger seat. I look over at the other TPTs. They have no drivers. Either they are remotely piloted, or they are self-driving. Follow them, says the chief. A moment later, one of the TPTs surges forward and hurries off down the road. I throw my vehicle into gear, and seconds later, I'm giving chase. I look behind me into the cargo bay. There are five giant RRs there, armored battle bots, an enormous amount of firepower. It's been a while since I've driven, but instantly, I notice a few things are different. First, there are no streetlights. I realize there don't need to be. Self-driving cars are meshed together. They communicate constantly. As there are no pedestrians, every vehicle knows where every hazard is and where it will be. There's no need for streetlights. Given that, nothing is going to slow us down. Second, the roads themselves are no longer made for human comfort. There are massive potholes and divots. The TPT's thick suspensions are clearly designed to compensate for this lack of maintenance. As we race over the uneven roads, I can see we're headed straight out of the center of the city. I'd have thought the director lives in its center. Where are we going, I ask. The director doesn't live in the city, the chief says. Randoms might find him and attack him. He has a house, well, a fortress really, well outside the city limits. We all do. All of us but the president herself. She says the symbol of living in the city is worth the risk. I guess that makes sense. We drive as fast as the TPTs can take us. The chief is talking constantly as we go, but not to me. He's telling the pilot of each RR what his job will be when we get to the house. Over an hour later, our headlights turn off and all three vehicles draw to a stop. The world around us is almost pitch black. The back of the TPTs open and the armored RRs pile out. The chief and I join them. I can just smell the scent of the trees through my suit's filters. I haven't smelled trees in years. Folks, says the chief, into his radio, we have 20 minutes. We have to move fast. Let's go. We jog a short distance. The RRs lead the way. I see a wall ahead. A crew of three RRs starts running towards it. The other RRs and the chief and I race behind them. 
With a crash, the RRs puncture the wall and keep running. We dodge the rubble and race to keep up with them. There's a house ahead. The RRs race forward. They punch another hole through the side of the house, and then we're inside. I look around, surprised to see a massive stack of uneaten rations, months worth. They'd been delivered by the logistics bots, and then they'd been left uneaten. Why? The chief's head shifts from side to side, taking it all in. Then he runs off in one direction. I follow him into some sort of office, and then, even through the suit, I smell it. I smell death. When I glance towards the desk, I see death. There's a man there, slumped in front of a screen. There's a massive gash across the back of his head. His skin is gray, dried blood is everywhere. But there are no flies. The house is hermetically sealed. An RR that is clearly meant to be used by a cleaner is standing behind the body. There's a brown streak along one of its arms. The RR killed the man. Somehow, somebody has compromised the system. The chief acts almost instantaneously. He punches a button on his phone. I fall to the floor, my restraints reapplied. He glances suspiciously at the RRs, like he's considering what to do next. But they are armored police units. He can't do much of anything to them. Folks, he says, somebody has messed with the RR system. I have no idea how. Our authentication systems must have been hacked, so I want you to partner up. Literally hold hands. If any individual RR starts to misbehave, I want his partner to restrain it and to call for help. Copy? I can't hear it, but I imagine each of them repeating their agreement to the chief. The two RRs in the room with us link up. That done, the chief looks back to me. What the hell is going on here? He demands. I don't know, I say, fear in my voice. The chief is talking to the people controlling the RRs. Some of them must be experts of different types. Two months? He's been dead two months, but I talked to him this morning. A pause. I'll do that. The chief pulls aside the monitor on the desk. The authentication unit is sitting behind it. There's another box there, though, pushed up against the sensor side of the authenticator. What is it? asks the chief. He's asking his experts. After receiving some unheard direction, the chief reaches forward and pulls the box back. He turns it around and shows it to one of the RRs. But even I can understand its function. There's a tiny screen on one part of it, opposite the authenticator's camera, and there's a tiny speaker at another part, opposite the authenticator's speaker. A number of other little parts dotted corresponding to the other sensors on the authentication box. Somebody worked out how to spoof the authenticator. They couldn't lie about the location of the box. The location systems couldn't be hacked, but the rest of the system could be spoofed. Somehow, they killed the director and placed this box in his office. Somehow, somebody has been playing the director of the undercover police for months. Two of the linked RRs come close. One has a large black box in his hand. I'm guessing it's an analysis kit of sorts. I hear the chief's side of the conversation. It's sending and receiving data now. Where from? Where the hell is that? Any police units nearby? Shit. The chief stops for a moment. Then he says, smash the device. The RR crushes the device between its powerful arms. With a little bit of a smile, the first I've seen on him, the chief says, the bastard won't expect this. He hits another button on his phone. I need a strike. I have coordinates. Are you ready? A moment later, he reads out a GPS location. He follows it with a single word, Hammersmith. I have no idea what he's done, but he seems very satisfied with it. He nods to himself, then he pulls his gun from his holster. He aims it straight at me with the arm that has the phone on it. I'm going to release you, he says. Don't run. Stand up slowly. We're going to walk to the TPT. Anything funny, and I or one of the RRs will drop you dead. You got it? I nod. The chief taps his phone with his other hand. My restraints loosen. I stand and walk back through the smashed wall and smashed fence. I don't want to resist. I want to help. We get to the TPT. The chief leads me to the front passenger seat. He commands me to put on my seatbelt, and then he taps his phone again. My restraints lock me back into place. The rest of you, he announces into his radio, stay here. I don't know yet that you can't be compromised. The chief rushes around to the driver's side, climbs up into the cab, belts himself in, and hits the accelerator. What'd you do, I ask. The chief looks over to me suspiciously. Then with a smile, he said, It hardly matters now. I called in the Air Force. The Air Force, I asked, genuinely curious. The police couldn't get to the location fast enough, but the Air Force can. In. He checks his watch. Six minutes. They'll blow the shit out of this Nero character. We'll roll up and check out the aftermath. The chief seems almost excited, like he's been able to use a toy he's never had a chance to use before. Good, I say. The chief eyes me, but I know that he can see that I mean it. I want this Nero character gone. 
We continue in silence. About five minutes later, I hear him ask a question. It isn't for me. Do you have a strike report? Then, what do you mean which strike? The one I called in. The chief looks genuinely confused. A few seconds later, we hear faraway booms from what seems to be every direction. There are waves of them, one after the other. I feel my restraints loosen, but I don't move. Even if I did move, I'd have no idea what I want to do. Hello, hello, I hear him call. I realize that whoever the chief is talking to isn't talking back. It has been about six minutes. It has been about three hours since Nero's promise. Maybe it's been exactly three hours. The chief stomps in the accelerator. We surge forward. Anybody, I hear him call out. He seems panicked, cut off from his world. Is the whole net down? As he drives, the chief pulls his gun. He aims it roughly at my head. It isn't easy watching both the road and me. Nero, he says. The accusation has returned. What did you do? I'm not Nero, I say. I want to squirm away from the gun. I want to retreat. But I know that if he knows that I'm no longer restrained, he'll pull his trigger. I won't stand a chance. We drive on. The chief is glowering as he drives. I guess he's decided there's no point to the conversation. I imagine the vials waiting for me at the station. Occasionally, I hear him ask nobody in particular, Health police here. Do you copy? There never seems to be any response. Ahead, I see the outskirts of the city in the pre-dawn light of the sun. As we draw closer, I see something I haven't seen in years. People. People in the streets. Muscles atrophy. They stumble into the early light. I can imagine their eyes adjusting to the unfamiliar glare of morning. The chief slows. There are pedestrians now. Pedestrians who may have forgotten or never even knew just how dangerous roads could be. Why are they out of their houses? Why are they violating quarantine? A moment later, the answer comes to me. Des Moines. Their morning food didn't come. They didn't get their rations. They are out, violating quarantine, looking for food. Everything has been shut down. In that moment, I think of Emma, and I realize that she's all alone. She's closed off. She can't survive outside isolation, and I am not there to rescue her from her sudden and complete isolation. My daughter, I say. It is a sort of question. The chief glances at me. She'll have to fend for herself. She has CVID. I don't care, the chief says. She's one person. Even if you're innocent, you're involved in all of this. Millions of people could die because of this. I'm going to figure it out, and you're going to help, whether you want to or not. I want to help him, but I need to help Emma. I think about trying to surprise him. Maybe I could grab his gun. Maybe I could force him to drive me to my house. Or maybe he'd just shoot me, and Emma would die alone. I stay in my seat. There are more pedestrians now. The chief slows the TPT. The crowd goes thicker. Somebody walks directly in front of the truck. The chief slams on the brakes. We stop. Then somebody opens the driver's side door from the outside. The chief looks down, a little confused, but there is no malice or fear in his face. I glance past the chief at the man outside. I realize I know who it is. It is Ender. What happens next happens quickly. The chief is violently yanked from the TPT. In one almost fluid motion, Ender grabs the chief's gun and pulls it from his hand. As the chief hits the road, Ender turns the gun towards him and fires one round right through the chief's face mask. I sit there, frozen in fear. What the hell is he going to do to me? Ender leans back into the truck. Medicine man, he says, as if he had been expecting me. Yes, I ask. You aren't the enemy. With that, he closes the door. I climb over to the now-empty driver's seat. I look down at the chief's body laying beside the truck. The horror of it overwhelms me. When the crowd in front of me parts, suddenly the road is clear, and I remember that Emma needs me. She needs me now. I hit the accelerator and race forward. Ten minutes later, I'm home. I race up to our apartments and through the front door. Emma's door is closed. Thank goodness her door is still closed. Emma, are you in there? I ask quietly. I don't hear anything. Emma, I say... I'll get you anything you need. Stay in there. You need to get healthy. I don't hear anything. I run to the kitchen where there's another family tablet. I turn it on, but it seems to have no connection. I run back to the room. Emma, I ask more loudly. Nothing. Emma, I shout. I pound on the door. Still, there's no response. Can I risk going in? I shout. I pound. Nothing. I decide I need to act now. Anyway, I'm in a suit. She should be safe from me. I turn the door handle. It's unlocked. I push it in. As it slides, I realize there's some resistance. I'm pushing rations aside. Weeks of rations. I shove the door then. In a sudden panic, I burst into her room, almost expecting to see her slumped over her desk, gray and dead. But her room is empty. 
She's not there. My heart is racing as I try to figure it out. As soon as I see the note on her bed, I rush forward and pick it up. It has only one sentence. Nothing valuable comes without a cost. Her mother's last words. And the same thing the president said to me when she'd enlisted me in her war against Nero. I can't understand it, but I can still follow the trail. Before I know it, I'm back in the TPT and racing towards the National Mall and the Cylinder, the official residence of the President of the International Health Authority. In minutes, I'm there. As I jump down from the truck, I realize the main entrance is ajar. There's an airlock here as well, but the second door is already open. There's no real protection against pathogens. The inside could be compromised. I step through the door, worried sick that I'll find my daughter inside, but I don't see much of anything within the cylinder. The space is almost completely empty. Ahead of me is another cylinder, reaching skywards. It is a freestanding elevator. I rush forward and punch the button, but nothing happens. I glance around urgently. Then I see it, an almost invisible staircase wrapping around the inside edge of the tower, like in an old lighthouse. I run to the bottom of the stairs, and I begin to race up them. It doesn't take long to realize I have more in common with those atrophied randoms than I'd suspected. I haven't climbed stairs in years. The further I get, the harder it gets, but eventually I reach the top. It must be ten stories up. There's a door there. I turn the handle and push it in. Immediately, even through the suit's filters, I smell the scent of death. There's an office directly ahead of me. I run into it, fearing Emma will be there, but she isn't. Instead, the president's body is spilled across the floor. Her head has been bashed in, just as the director's was. Standing next to her is an RR, not a domestic model, but a police model. Its dangerous-looking metal arm is stained brown. Flies circle this body. This space has not been hermetically sealed off. I glance toward the desk, and I see it there, another of the little boxes. Somebody has been spoofing the president. I'm no forensic effort, but I'd imagine somebody has been spoofing her for weeks. I stumble back out of the office. I close the door behind me. I am completely confused, lost. Then I see it, a small tuft of blonde hair sticking up above the edge of a couch, a couch overlooking the city. Emma's hair is blonde. I step towards the couch. I walk slowly, cautiously. I'm afraid of what I might see. When I can finally see the person on the couch, I know who it is. It is Emma. Her eyes are pointed ahead of her. She's looking out the window. She seems terribly pale. Emma, I say, unsure whether she's alive. Then she glances towards me. Her eyes are shining with light. She smiles. I'm overjoyed. Nero, she says. You can call me Nero. Nero, I ask. Nero? Emma is Nero? She just watches me like she's waiting for me to understand some puzzle, but I can't comprehend it. I needed a word, she says. What? I ask. Hammersmith, she says. Suddenly, it all comes together. Emma used her knowledge of networking to not only build her spoofing box, but to hack the health authority databases. When the man-sized testing machine had come, it hadn't been a machine. It had been a box. It had carried her in and out of the house again and again. Either she or her random lieutenants had commandeered the director's maid's RR. They'd used it to kill the director. Then the spoofer had been planted on his desk. Acting as the director using deepfake video, my daughter had undermined the police and the effort against the randoms. Then she'd kill the president herself. At some point, she'd come here, and she'd become the president and the director. It was as the president that she recruited me. When the chief picked me up, it was because she wanted him to. She wanted me with him. She wanted me to go to the director's house. She wanted the chief to be out of time. She wanted him to call in an airstrike when he wasn't in front of a proper authentication terminal. She wanted him to have to use his authorization code word. She wanted Hammersmith. Everything she'd had me do, all of it, had been so she could use the Air Force to attack the network infrastructure that kept the health authority functioning. She'd used me to condemn millions to die. How did you hear the code word, I ask, feeling very, very distant from the girl in front of me. Is your neck still sore, she asks. Yes, I say. I injected you with a little biopowered radio while you were asleep. You've been broadcasting for weeks. It was how Ender found you and saved you from the chief. She rescued me. One tiny concession in a trail of murder? Why, I ask. She coughs then. The violence of it surprises me. Because, she says, you promised to give me life. I don't understand. I draw closer. I can hear her labored breathing. I can tell that her lungs are filling. She sounds just as Ruth had in the days before she died. Could it be the same virus, the same incurable virus? 
I think about calling the health authority to ask for help, but there is no health authority. And even if there were, my daughter is a random. She is not eligible for care. She does not deserve to receive it. She began life as a killer. I didn't think that's what she truly was. I thought it was an accident of chance. But I was wrong. She is a monster. I don't call anybody. I don't seek out any help. I just stand there in my biosuit trying to understand as the sun rises on a city that seems to be waking up for the first time in years. As the day passes, Emma gets sicker and sicker. I don't help her. I just watch her, trying to unravel the mystery that she has become. I can't understand how she could be both a sweet girl I'd known and the murdering monster named Nero. The next morning, I wake up to find Emma sitting on the couch. She hasn't moved since I first found her. She's watching the city, but she's barely breathing. I can hear that she's dying. I remember Ruth's final moments, spent talking with Emma and I through a tablet's screen. I can't bear that experience a second time. Slowly, deliberately, I take off my biosuit and I sit beside my daughter. I lower her head onto my lap. I rest my bare hand against her soft face. It is the first time in years that I've actually touched her. Together we look out on the city below. We can see the people in the streets as the sun gently lifts into the sky. In that moment, I realize that I know her. For the very first time, I know her. As she draws her last breaths, I realize that I have fulfilled my promise. I have given her life. Nothing valuable comes without a cost.